Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is Episode 4 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our topic for today is DOJ, or the Department of Justice's Outsourcing of Criminal Investigations and Prosecutions. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Our podcast today is sponsored by my law firm, the Volkoff Law Group, and is a companion to our blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Today, we are going to discuss the Justice Department's outsourcing of criminal investigations and prosecutions. Uh, The focus of this episode is on changes over the last 15 years to DOJ's prosecution of corporations and individuals. My perspective on this issue comes from my 25 years of experience as a federal prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia and at the U.S. Department of Justice. I recommend two books on the subject if you're interested, and they are listed on my posting as well. The recent book that came out by called The Chicken Shit Club by Jesse Ettinger and Too Big to Jail by Brandon Garrett. Both these books outline the transformation inside the Justice Department on the aggressive prosecution of corporations and white-collar violators. Let's start with where we are in today's system. A company may discover a safety, bribery, fraud, antitrust cartel, or other significant legal violation. A whistleblower may report the violation internally or to the government, or even internal audit can discover something, or compliance or legal uh, sometimes even finds a violation. The government has created incentives for companies to self-report such violations, or a company in response to publicity or report of a government investigation may seek to cooperate with the government's investigation. Rarely these days does the company challenge the government's investigation. Rather, the company seeks to cooperate and head off a criminal indictment and prosecution of the company itself. After contacting the government, the company conducts its own internal investigation, typically by outside counsel with the goal of unearthing the facts and reporting back to the government on the results. This is what I would term as the outsourcing of a government's traditional criminal investigation. This was the new model that developed and flourished during the Obama administration under the leadership of Eric Holder and the head of the criminal division, Lanny Brewer. This model was successful if your goal was to seek large corporate fines and major headlines against companies and reflected a focus on securing those large fines without an in-depth, grinded-out criminal investigation traditionally carried out by a prosecutor or a team of prosecutors and agents and presented to the grand jury. Along the way, companies and prosecutors were not focused on building cases to present evidence of individuals who may be liable. In addition, The Justice Department's model included use of non-prosecution and deferred prosecution agreements. Companies were not forced to plead guilty in many cases, but accepted such agreements that typically included compliance improvements, retention of monitors, and other governance improvements. The motivation behind this model was what was termed the Arthur Anderson case, a criminal case brought against Arthur Anderson in Houston, Texas in the early 2000s, which resulted in the conviction and demise of the company for accounting and obstruction of justice violations. The fear was that companies, if indicted and if convicted, would fail and go out of business, putting people out of work. In contrast, let me describe the traditional model or approach to criminal investigations. This is the model that I was taught and applied during my career. 
It was developed during organized crime and drug trafficking gang prosecutions and then applied in the white-collar context. This same model is being used as we watch the Mueller investigation of the Trump administration and the Russian collusion allegations. It's the same grinded-out model, and you can see it as it's starting to work right now. A prosecutor working with law enforcement would build a criminal case by targeting members of an organization for criminal prosecution using a variety of strategies, wiretaps, undercover operations, historical information, cooperating witness testimony, and other sources of information. The prosecutor builds cases, initiates prosecutions, and seeks to flip defendants to obtain information, develop witnesses, many of whom would have plea agreements and who cooperated in the hopes of reducing their sentencing. It is painstaking work, requires vision and commitment and a goal, an overall objective of where you're heading and who you're looking at as potential witnesses and cooperating with. In the early 2000s, after the financial accounting and reporting scandals of WorldCom, Enron, and others, this traditional model was applied to white-collar cases. The companies in these cases were inextricably tied to offending leaders and senior executives, many of whom, like Bernie Ebers, Kenneth Lay, Jeffrey Skilling, and others were prosecuted individually for their roles in massive corporate frauds and financial reporting irregularities. Perhaps the last white-collar case prosecuted in this traditional manner was the Enron case, where individuals were prosecuted and cases built eventually leading to the prosecution of Ken Lay and Jeffrey Skilling. Corporate interests after that pushed back on this model and found an intriguing issue to politically push against aggressive prosecution of white-collar crimes. The requirement that companies waive attorney-client privilege to get cooperation credit in a criminal settlement. Everything was upended again when the financial crisis of 2008 hit the country. Companies like Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, AIG, and others floundered, and prosecutors scraped the surface for potential cases. But instead of focusing DOJ's response through a centralized task force or unit, the responses were diluted by delegating responsibility for these supposed investigations to regional prosecution uh, task forces or local U.S. attorney's office. It was the kiss of death, and no one had any interest or understanding on the need to centralize the response, as was done with the Enron task force. Unfortunately, this would turn into the Justice Department's darkest hour. No consistent effort was put into a real response. An initial prosecution in Brooklyn against two Bear Stearns traders resulted in acquittals, and the criminal division turned into a nervous Nelly from that point on. No one understood the implications of avoiding prosecutions of individuals, and fear of losing became the mantra and unspoken code. Criminal division political staff reviewed cases, questioned prosecutors, and slowed down the pace of investigations, leading eventually to a desire for public relations hits with large corporate settlements and outsourcing to comply internal investigations, which were never really pressure-tested or pushed to develop cases against culpable higher-ups. The lasting legacy of the Justice Department in the Obama administration may sound good on paper, ever-increasing fines but few culpable individuals sent to jail. The question arises, what is, then, the best way to deter white-collar crime? Is it to put people in jail, or is it to secure large corporate fines? In the end, many have argued that the DPAs, or Deferred Prosecution Agreements, 
non-prosecution agreements, and large firm internal investigations have watered down corporate criminal enforcement to fines that only harm company shareholders and permit board members and senior executives to escape liability. Towards the end of the Obama Justice Department's administration, DOJ sought to repair or address this issue. Too little, too late. First, DOJ prosecutors started to seek criminal pleas from corporations. For years, the argument for financial institutions had been that a criminal plea could have regulatory implications like a loss of license that would cause the financial institution to go out of business. DOJ feared a consequence for years, but in an attempt to address this issue, they started to require financial institutions and other companies to plead guilty to a criminal offense. To accomplish this, DOJ itself met with regulatory agencies and received assurances at the same time that the subject companies would not lose the ability to continue to operate. In other words, a criminal conviction now just became a cost of doing business and included a reputational harm of a criminal conviction versus a DPA, MPA, or some other type of civil settlement. There were no other consequences. Second, the Justice Department refocused prosecutors' attention on culpable individuals and issued the Yates Memorandum in 2015, which required companies seeking cooperation credit to turn over evidence of individual culpability in order to earn cooperation credit so that individuals could be identified for prosecution. The impact of the Yates Memorandum to date has been minimal at best. Only in two significant criminal cases has there been any evidence of impact. The Takata airbag safety case, which resulted in three individuals being prosecuted, and the VW emissions cheating case, which included six individuals who were criminally prosecuted, including the head of compliance. Just to make matters more interesting, the current Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, recently announced that the current Justice Department plans to take yet another look at corporate and individual criminal prosecution strategy. So we may see yet another policy designed to address individual culpability and corporate criminal prosecution. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. I can be reached at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com or call me on my cell phone at 240-505-1992. My law firm blog is at www.volkofflaw.com. Please subscribe to our blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. The Volkoff Law Group provides enforcement defense services for companies and individuals under investigation or for criminal trials. We've represented companies and individuals before the Justice Department, U.S. Attorney's Offices, and the Securities and Exchange Commission in white-collar matters, including antitrust, fraud, FCPA, false claims, false claims act, and other issues.